So if you were with us on Christmas Day, you'll remember that we were thinking about the reality behind the Christmas message. And uh, we saw that the good news of Christmas is that Jesus Christ came into the world to defeat the devil and all his works. Praise God, he's done it. And because of his victory, everyone who trusts in Jesus has had all of their sins forgiven. They've been brought in to God's eternal family and all of the resources of heaven are now fully at their disposal. Now the great problem is that most Christians today don't really know just how much they need those tremendous resources. Because on Christmas Day we were reminded that although the devil has been defeated, he hasn't been destroyed. And uh, that's only going to happen when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. And in the meantime, the devil is at war with God's people. He's at war with the church. That is the message of Revelation chapter 12. I wonder if you knew that. It means that if you're a Christian here this morning, you're at war. It means you have a target on your back. Ask anyone who's been a Christian for more than five minutes, and they'll tell you that is absolutely true. And that's why I've chosen this rather magnificent passage from Ephesians 6 this morning. Because it warns us what to expect, and it helps us to be properly prepared. And uh, as you and I stand on the threshold of the new year, it would surely be wise, wouldn't it, for us to be thinking about this. So how do you and I prepare for spiritual warfare in 2020? The key verse is verse 10, if you'd like to look at it, where the Apostle says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Now it is very important to understand what the Apostle is not saying there. He's not saying uh, it's a war out there so you people have really got to toughen up. He's not saying that. Uh, the message is a marvellous modern paraphrase of the Bible and I think it captures the sense rather better than the NIV. It translates verse 10 like this. It says, take everything that the Master has set out for you. Now I like that because it helps us to see that the, the strength that we need for the battle does not come from within us. It comes from Jesus and it is available to every Christian without exception. But having said that, of course, you and I are not passive in the struggle. You and I have our own particular battle orders from the Lord Jesus. What are they? Well, I'll, I'll briefly mention three, and they're set out for you in the bulletin. Number one, know your enemy. Uh, and here we're looking at verses 10 to 12. Uh, twice in this passage, the Apostle Paul says that we are to put on the full armour of God. He says that once in verse 11, and he says it again in verse 13. And uh, according to verse 11, 
The reason that we need this armour is to take our stand against the devil's schemes. What are those schemes? Well, back in chapter 4 of this letter, you don't need to look at it, uh, Paul says that one of the things we've got to do is we must not let the devil get a foothold in our relationships. Paul warns us that the devil is constantly looking for an opportunity to break up relationships within the family in the local church, between Christians in the local church. And now here in chapter 6, Paul is telling us that the devil is not working alone. He has vast armies at his disposal. Paul describes them, you'll notice, as rulers, authorities, and powers. And in verse 12, he says they are spiritual forces of evil. Now, there are lots of them. The great problem is that you and I can't actually see them. Now, that doesn't mean that they are any less real. Uh, So, cast your mind back for a moment to that awful uh, event that we call 9-11. One of the consequences of 9-11, the 9-11 attacks on New York and on Washington, was that the nature of warfare changed completely overnight. Suddenly, the enemy was invisible. Uh, You didn't know where he was, you didn't know what he looked like, and you had absolutely no idea where he would attack next. But nobody doubted that he was real, did they? If they did, they only had to look at the place where the Twin Towers used to stand to be reminded of the reality. Now that is our situation as Christians. These spiritual forces of evil might be invisible, but they are very real. And they're constantly working against God's people, leaving a terrible trail of broken relationships in their wake. So, for example, uh, if God's design for marriage is that marriage should be a picture of the gospel, the devil and his armies are constantly going to be working to make sure that it doesn't. Uh, The attacks will come in different forms, but it will usually be subtle, it will usually be unexpected, and most people, particularly those people outside the church, won't see it coming until it's already too late. Uh, I mentioned the pancakes a moment ago. If you like cooking, uh, some of you will be familiar with Uh, the name Nigella Lawson. She is a a celebrity chef. Uh, Her first husband died of cancer and a few years later she married a rather wealthy art dealer. They had three children and for years they seemed to be very happy together. But after ten years their marriage got into difficulties and Nigella filed for divorce. When the case came to court it took just 90 seconds to bring their marriage to an end. A marriage destroyed, a home torn apart, children's lives turned upside down, all in 90 seconds. Is that God's design? I don't think so. 
In the same way, uh, if children are to learn obedience to Almighty God through their parents, the devil is going to be working overtime to make sure that they don't. And uh, the devil in recent years has successfully recruited a number of governments in the West to help him achieve his purpose. But don't let's go there. What about the individual Christian? What do you and I need to know personally about the devil's schemes in order to be adequately prepared for his attacks? One of the great Puritan preachers and authors was a man called William Gurner. He wrote a book called The Christian in Complete Armour. Uh, it was a 1,200-page commentary, if you can believe it, on the verses that we're looking at Ephesians this morning. Not the whole letter, just verses 10 to 24, 1,200 pages. Um, in that book, he identified the times when the devil is most likely to attack the individual Christian. If you like, you can think of these as accident black spots. And uh, they're just as dangerous for Christians today as they've always been. We need to know what they are. Let me mention three. The first black spot is when the Christian is newly converted. Of course, the uh, early days of our Christian lives are terribly, terribly special. I'm sure most of us would say that. And I can vividly remember that for weeks after my own conversion, uh, I felt completely different. That God had opened my eyes to see things that I'd never really thought about before. And I had a sort of new optimism and a new, a new sense of joy about life and all its possibilities. But you see, in those early days after we're converted, we aren't yet strongly established in a path of obedience. And so what happens is that the devil comes along and he trips us up. And when he's done it, he comes along and he sits on our shoulder and he whispers in our ear, well, see, you're not really a Christian at all, are you? Your conversion was temporary. Now you've fallen away. Well, you may as well just settle down and follow me. Well, that happened to me and it may well have happened to a number of you. And at the time, it caused me personally a great deal of anguish. The second black spot is when the Christian suffers. And these are the times when the devil comes along and he says, well, you know, if God really loved you, then uh, he wouldn't be letting you suffer like this. It obviously means he doesn't care about you. So you might as well sin as you please. I mean, don't bother about this life of obedience. And you don't have to be a Christian, do you, for terribly long before you discover exactly what he's talking about. And then the third accident black spot is when a Christian is on his own. I think probably this is one of the most common ones in South Africa. My dear friend, if you try and live the Christian life on your own, you are a very easy target for the devil's arrows. Typically, he comes along and he says, well, I can see that finally you've been drawn away from those hypocrites in your local church who've been stopping you from having marvellous fun. Well, now you can do whatever you like and they won't even know about it. I guess over the years in ministry to businessmen, I've lost count 
of the number of Christian businessmen who've fallen at that particular fence. And the majority of them have never found their way back. Now, I realise all that sounds a little intimidating, perhaps even a bit depressing. Uh, An army of invisible, powerful, spiritual terrorists constantly plotting against us. So before we move on, I want to draw your attention to a very, very important detail in the text. Look at verse 12, the end of verse 12. Because the end of verse 12 tells us that these spiritual terrorists are in the heavenly realms. Now that is a very important detail. Because in Ephesians, Paul says that the heavenly realms is the place where Jesus Christ is ruling today. Christ has already defeated the spiritual forces of evil at the cross. And now, Christ is ruling over absolutely everything, including these dark powers, in the heavenly realms. And because that is so, we too share in his victory. So we don't have to be afraid Yes, the spiritual forces of evil are very real. We would be most unwise to ignore them. But we would be equally foolish to be terrified about them. Christ has defeated them. So we don't have to win the battle. Rather, our responsibility is to stand firm. That phrase is repeated several times in the text. To stand firm in the victory Christ has already won. How do we do that? Well, it brings us to battle order number two. If number one is know your enemy, battle order number two is know your equipment. Verses 13 to 17. Now, I guess when you read this, at first sight, the the imagery to our 21st century ears seems rather out of date. And you might be thinking, well, surely we could communicate this rather better by replacing the breastplates and the shields and the swords with rather more up-to-date categories. Perhaps we could have the tank of truth or maybe the missile of righteousness. But actually that wouldn't help us. Why wouldn't it? Well, there are two clues that help us understand how it is that this armour is so brilliantly effective in protecting Christians. The first clue is that the armour in Ephesians 6 is the armour that God himself wears when he comes to save his people. Keep one finger, please, in Ephesians 6 and turn uh, left in your Bibles to Isaiah 59 on page 521. Isaiah 59 page 521. Now while you're turning there, let me tell you that the context at this point in the book of Isaiah is that um, Israel has sinned against God and now they're under his righteous judgment in exile. But some of them have repented. They've confessed their sins But the problem is, they're still in exile. In other words, they're still in enemy territory. 
So, how can they be saved? Look at verse 15b. Isaiah 59, verse 15, second half of the verse. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm achieved salvation for him, and his own righteousness sustained him. Now listen to this. He put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. Now the point is that the Old Testament very frequently describes Almighty God as a warrior. A warrior who fights to save his people. It's part of his righteous character. But who exactly is Isaiah talking about here? Look down to verse 20, which I think is over the page. Verse 20. Now just just see how striking this is. What an amazing prophecy this is. Isaiah says, The Redeemer will come to Zion. To those in Jacob who repent of their sins, declares the Lord. You see, these Old Testament descriptions of God the warrior are all pointing forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our Redeemer. And the armour in Ephesians 6 is the armour that the Lord Jesus has already worn in achieving salvation for us. And that salvation includes total victory over the devil and his spiritual forces of evil. So that's the first clue. Quickly come back to Ephesians, because the second clue that we need in order to understand how this armour applies to us is to realise that each piece of the armour in Ephesians 6 refers back to something that Paul has already spoken about earlier in the letter. There's a little bit of page turning here, but just try and follow it with me if you can. Verse 14 of chapter 6, Paul says, Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. Now what is the belt of truth all about? Well, it's actually where Paul began the letter, so quickly flick back to chapter 1, verse 13. Paul begins his letter by talking about God's plan for the future. Where do we fit into that? Verse 13, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the, what? The word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. So where do we begin in our struggle against the devil's schemes and all his crafty deceptions? Well, we believe the truth of the gospel. And it is our loyalty and our faithfulness to the gospel that is the primary means of drawing on the strength that uh, God provides so that we can stand firm in him. And at the start of every day, you and I need to buckle on the gospel. Second, in verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 14, we have this curious phrase, the breastplate of righteousness. We must have that in place, says Paul. Now, of course, you know that that's talking about the perfect righteousness of Christ 
that God gives to his people through the gospel when they believe in Jesus. We don't deserve it. When I buckle on the belt of gospel truth, God gives me the breastplate of righteousness as a gift. Two things follow. The first is that the devil's accusations can no longer stand. God has chosen to clothe me in the perfect righteousness of Christ. And I rejoice in the fact that therefore I no longer stand under God's condemnation. That's the first thing. The second thing that follows is because God gives me this righteousness as a gift, I am liberated, I am set free to live a righteous life. What does that mean? Well, just look back to chapter 4 and verse 24, where Paul says, Put on the new self, created to be like God, in true righteousness and holiness. In other words, you've been given a new identity, so wear it. What does that mean in practice? Well, I'll tell you what it means in practice. It starts by looking at sin and labelling it for what it actually is. And I think this is one area where we are especially vulnerable because our culture simply doesn't do it. So today, the, the murder of unborn babies is described as freedom of choice. And what the Bible labels quite clearly as perversion, our culture describes as the gay lifestyle, a legitimate lifestyle choice. And what God sees as adultery is described variously, well, lots of different phrases, but one of the worst is, well, I'm moving on with my life. Now, wearing the breastplate of righteousness includes holding firmly to the biblical categories of sin and not letting them go. Then next, in verse 15, uh, we are to have our feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. So, back in Ephesians 2, Paul says that the gospel is all about peace. Chapter 2, verse 17. Jesus came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. Now the idea there is that at the cross Jesus made peace and that through his resurrection he also preached peace to everybody. Everyone in every nation. Peace between God and man and peace between believers from lots of different backgrounds and cultures. And the very existence of a multi multicultural church around the world 2,000 years later is concrete proof of that victory. And in Ephesians 6, our battle orders include a willingness, a readiness to share this news with others as God gives us opportunity. Now that is something that we as a church are going to be doing a great deal more of in 2020. 
and we've got an exciting new initiative that we're going to share with you on Vision Day, so you must make sure you're here for that. But you see, it's one of the ways that we stand against the devil's schemes. Just think about this with me. You see, the implication is that we are not going to stand firm by simply living a righteous life but keeping our mouths shut. That's the implication. We need to open our mouths and tell people about the death of Jesus and what it means. Because it's as we do that that the truths of the Gospel become clearer and sharper in our own mind and in our own thinking and take deeper root in our hearts so that we become spiritually strong. How are you doing with that? I mean, if you go through an entire year and you never, never share the Gospel with anybody, you mustn't be surprised if Satan comes along and trips you up. Next, Verse 16, we're going to take up the shield of faith with which we can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Now that is picking up chapter 3, verse 17, where Paul prays that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now faith, you see, is the means by which the Christian experiences Jesus living within him or within But what on earth is faith? Sounds like religious jargon. We don't like jargon. Faith is believing all God's promises about Jesus. So you see, as an example, when the devil comes along and says, well, quite frankly, you're no good and you're never going to do anything good, faith says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. See, that's what faith says. And you see, what we need to learn is that the the power of faith to shield us from all the accusations and temptations of the devil does not come from our intellect or from our understanding, definitely not. Rather, faith is an effective shield because of the object of our faith. And I think an illustration is needed. So, think with me for a moment back to the book of Exodus. You all know the story. And imagine two Jewish men talking to one another over the garden fence if they had one on Passover night, okay? The night before the Exodus. Uh, Let's call them Charles and Henry. And Charles says to Henry, "Um, have you painted the blood of the Lamb over the door on your house tonight like Moses told us to? And uh, Henry says, well, of course. Um, God promised that if we did, the angel of death would pass over our house and our firstborn son would be spared. And as soon as I heard the command, the very first thing I did was to rush home and do it straight away. And now I've done it I feel so much easier in my mind. Uh, What about you? And Charles replies, well, I did, but you know, to tell you the truth, I'm not entirely convinced. Um, I don't really see how just a little bit of blood is going to stop the angel of death. It's so terribly unscientific. So I don't think I'm going to be sleeping at all tonight. 
Now the question is, in the morning, whose son was alive? They both were. You see, neither Charles nor Henry lost their son. Why not? Because God's promise was not based on the amount of their faith, because quite frankly, Henry was very wobbly. God's promise was not based on the amount of their faith, it was based on the object of their faith. And in exactly the same way, you see, in our own lives, when Satan comes at us with his accusations and lies, our response is that the object of our faith is more than adequate. And we say with total confidence, Christ Jesus died for me, he saved me, get behind me, Satan. Then the helmet of salvation, verse 17, is shorthand for everything that Paul has said about our security as believers. Our sins have been forgiven, uh, we belong to God, and we can be absolutely certain of our place in God's plan for the future. And it's knowing that that keeps our heads clear in the heat of spiritual battle. And then the last piece of equipment, in verse 17, is the sword of the Spirit. It's actually the most important, because Paul tells us what it is. What is it? What is the sword of the Spirit, somebody? The Word of God. Now, notice, it is the only offensive weapon on the list. But what does it mean for a Christian to take up the sword of the Spirit and actually wield that sword effectively? Well, at one level, of course, Paul's talking about the Gospel. And I think he means us to see that the the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, gives the Gospel its cutting edge. And uh, for that reason, we can trust the, the Gospel to get the job done. But there's a rather lovely detail in verse 17 which opens up a really precious application for us this morning. Because in the original text, Paul uses a very unusual word. Uh, We all know that phrase, the word of God. And the word that uh, Paul would normally use is is the word logos, the Greek word logos, which means revelation. But that is not the word that Paul uses here. He deliberately uses a rather unusual uh, Greek word which means a saying. And I think what he means is that in order for us to wield the sword of the Spirit effectively against the schemes of the devil, we need to be so familiar with Scripture that we can quote it accurately because we know the sayings of the Bible. So, do you remember on Christmas Day, we were reminded that when the Lord Jesus was tempted in the de- by the devil in the desert, to each temptation he responded by saying, it is written, and quoting the Bible. And one writer, uh, talking about Ephesians 6, applies that, and he says, look, if Jesus your Lord and Saviour had to know Scripture in order to resist Satan and win a victory over him, how much more 
Do you and I need to know it in order to wield a victory? And you might say, well, I've got a general idea what the Bible's about. I I believe it's the word word of God, and that's good. That's great. But according to Ephesians 6 and verse 17, it's not enough. It is not enough. You must know the sayings of Scripture. You must have them memorised in order to be able to resist and overcome Satan successfully. So, in spiritual warfare, our battle orders are know your enemy, number one, know your equipment, number two, and thirdly and briefly, know your limitations. Uh, the last section of the passage from verse 18. Let me emphasise once again that in spiritual warfare it is God who gives the victory, it is not us. That means we are to pray. And Paul says here in the text, we are to pray in the spirit. That does not mean, by the way, a sort of funky, super spiritual way of praying that only a few Christians can do. That is not what that phrase means. It simply means that it is the Holy Spirit who enables the Christian to pray. And the connection in the passage is that it is prayer that keeps all of the armour in place. Notice how often we are to pray Measure it against your own prayer life. Have a look at the text. Remember Paul is writing to ordinary Christians with jobs, families, duties to perform, and yet he says, pray on all occasions, with all kinds of prayers, and always keep on praying for all the saints. He's saying that there is never a time when it is wrong to pray for ourselves, to pray for one another. We are to talk through literally everything with God. Sometimes it will be with other Christians at church, sometimes it will be in the home group, but most of the time it will be informally. might be first thing in the morning. Works for me, might not work for you. It might be sending up arrow prayers throughout the day. And asking God to give us wisdom and strength in all the various challenges and situations that we all have to deal with every day. And I take it, please notice this, that we are to take particular care to pray for those who preach the gospel. Paul says in verse 19, Pray for me, that whenever I speak, words will be given me, that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly, as I should. Now, don't forget that Ephesians is not a private email to a series of individuals. It's a letter to a church. It's a letter to a group of people. So when he says that we are to take our stand against the devil's schemes... He's talking to all of us as a group. And so I want to suggest that we pray especially for grace to stand together for the gospel in 2020.
Because the devil is constantly going to be looking for opportunities to pull us apart. Yes, God has rescued us from the control of the devil. He has brought us into the kingdom of the Lord Jesus. But our participation in the kingdom of Jesus starts right here in church and in all our gatherings with one another. Well, that's more than enough to think about for 2020. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for the year that is past and for preserving us as a family of believers trusting in Jesus. As we prepare for the year ahead, help us to be spiritually alert. Help us to remember that the Christian life is war against the world, our sinful flesh and the devil. We thank you that in Christ we already have the victory. But help us to guard carefully against the devil's schemes so that our relationships might not be disrupted and our witness compromised. Help us to obey the commands in this text day by day so that when the day of evil comes, we will be standing strong together and we ask it for Christ's sake.